Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. All witnesses, persons of interest, and or suspects are considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. This is Method and Madness, Episode 66, Murdered, Kristen O'Connell, Part 8. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. Previously on Method and Madness. The newspapers said she resembled Brooke Shields. Her friends and family said she was lovely in every way, would sit and talk to you for hours. There was just something about her. Kristen O'Connell was 20 years old in the spring of 1985. She met a 19-year-old man, Jim Vermeersh, while vacationing in Florida. After Kristen returned home to Minneapolis, She kept in touch with Jim through letters and occasional phone calls. He was living in the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York, in a tiny village called Ovid. In August of that year, Kristen made plans to travel out to Ovid to see Jim and pick up where they'd left off five months earlier, to see if they had a romantic connection and if Jim was someone she could see herself with in the future. On Monday, August 12th, 1985, Kristen arrived in Ovid late at night. Jim welcomed her into his temporary home, a small trailer located next to the local bar, the Golden Buck. It wasn't long until Kristen realized that her trip and her stay with Jim was not going as planned. On the afternoon of Wednesday, August 14th, Kristen used the payphone at the Golden Buck and called her mom, Phyllis, back in Minneapolis. She said she was going to come home early. The reason why was not revealed. That afternoon, while accompanying Jim's friends to go swimming at a nearby lake, Kristen watched as her hosts found that a teenager was taking a joyride in a car he'd stolen from the parking lot of the Golden Buck. The car belonged to David Chamberlain, Jim's friend, and the son of Nutsy Chamberlain, the owner of the buck. After getting the car back, it was alleged by Gary Harris, the car thief, that David and his friends dragged the young man down to the lake and held his head under the water to teach him a lesson, while Kristen watched on in horror before defending Gary and having him sit next to her while the others swam. Eventually, the crew dropped Gary off at the buck and went about their evening, finding their way back to Jim's trailer sometime after 11 p.m. That night, around 11.15, Kristen spoke with one of the girls at the trailer and expressed her disappointment in what she perceived as Jim ignoring her. She didn't understand why he'd invited her out only to ignore her. Kristen left the trailer sometime around 11.30 and went for a walk, something she was known to do, to stargaze and to be alone with her thoughts. A few people at the trailer saw Kristen leave, wearing a red and white striped sleeveless sweater and white pants. She was barefoot. 
She was also seen by some passerbys on the road who had been driving home from work. Sometime after midnight, two of Jim's friends went out looking for Kristen, wondering where she'd gone and why she hadn't come back. They walked down a dark road in the rural area and heard what was described later as a blood-curdling scream, followed by the sound of a voice being muffled. The pair returned to the trailer that night, and some of the other teens that had been hanging out, including Jim, went out looking for Kristen to no avail. But despite the scream, despite the fact that Kristen was a visitor from out of town who knew nobody other than the one person she came to spend time with, nobody was alarmed enough to contact the police or to contact their parents that night and ask, what should we do? Reasons ranged from they thought maybe Kristen had left, hopped on a bus, despite not having any of her belongings and no shoes on. Other reasons, they believed someone had to be missing for 48 hours before being reported missing. The next day, the police were contacted in the afternoon about that car that had been stolen from the Golden Buck the previous day. When the police responded, they were also informed a young woman was missing. A search was underway that Thursday afternoon, and Kristen's family were contacted back in Minnesota. Phyllis O'Connell, Kristen's mom, was in anguish wondering what happened to her daughter as her 15-year-old son Kyle tried to comfort her as best he could. Mike O'Connell hopped a plane to New York to join the search for his only daughter. Kristen was found the following day, Friday, August 16th, naked and stabbed to death in the cornfield 1,200 feet from Jim's trailer, 96 feet from the road she had walked Wednesday night. Police quickly determined that the acquaintances of Kristen, the people in the trailer, were not suspects. But changing stories and timelines that don't quite add up would haunt this case for the next 38 years. Kristen's murder is still not solved. New York State Police will not provide any records, reports, or files to anyone, including the family, as they still consider this case an open investigation. There is evidence to be tested for DNA. What will it take for this case to finally be solved? What will it take to get justice for Kristen, to get some form of resolution for a family that still has no answers, despite decades of following up with investigators, hiring private investigators and psychics. There's been news coverage both locally in New York and in Minneapolis. Phyllis O'Connell has been writing a book about her entire experience. Will her book have an ending? Today, come with me as I travel to Minneapolis to finally meet the O'Connells in person. And tune in for what information was revealed while combing through interviews from early in the investigation. Let's dive in. On my flight to Minneapolis, I reflect on what has brought me here to this day. It began when a friend in the podcast industry reached out. Courtney Fenner, co-host of A Nefarious Nightmare, said, Hey Dawn, 
Would you be willing to cover this case? You bet. Nearly a year of learning about Kristen O'Connell, the events that transpired the week of August 12, 1985 in Ovid, New York, the events that happened after, and the weeks, months, and even years before Kristen took that trip, that time when everything was just normal. I reflect on all of it. The thought that I'm coming from the New York area and flying out to Minneapolis is an irony that is not lost on me. It's a flight that Kristen never got to take. She never returned to Minneapolis. As the wheels touch the runway, reflection is through as I do my walk from the plane and through Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport. Outside in the pickup lane, a black sedan pulls up with Phyllis O'Connell at the wheel. Her sister Barb is in the passenger seat. We exchange hugs. Now it's off to the O'Connell home, the same home that Phyllis has lived in all of these years, since 1978, in fact, the one that she and her husband Mike, now deceased, purchased for their family. The same front door that Kristen walked out of, suitcase in hand, before taking her flight and making her way down to Ovid, New York. She was nervous, but excited. The same home where Kristen opened her gifts on Christmas morning, hosted sleepovers with friends. The home where she laid on her brother Kyle's bedroom floor the night before she left for Ovid. The O'Connell home is in a pretty, peaceful neighborhood. It's a hot and muggy morning, but it doesn't feel any different than my East Coast summer mornings. Phyllis has a beautiful garden and shows me her rose bushes with pride. Each flower has a storybook quality to it perfect little dewdrops and vibrant color. She shows me some other flowers that have grown, but she's not sure of exactly what they are. I show her the iPhone hack where you can take a photo of a plant or an animal and an icon will appear to show you what type of plant or type of dog is pictured. I take a picture of her dog, a sweet five-year-old pup named Riley who's excited over the new guest visiting. Inside, we sit down for coffee, and Kyle O'Connell enters the kitchen. Fifteen at the time of his big sister's murder, he's now 53. More hugs are exchanged, and it's like I'm sitting there with family as these people have become a second family to me. I'm going to come visit the summer I had told Phyllis back in May. The bulk of the episodes on Kristen's series were completed, and it only felt right to go and see the people that I'd spent so much time with. Long conversations by phone, over Zoom, emails, texts, sharing ideas, theories, suggestions. And I was really eager to see the home Kristen lived in, to feel some part of her that was real, a part of her that was good, a setting that was filled with happy memories. I'd already visited Ovid in January, right after Kristen's birthday. I walked the same walk Kristen took, moments before she was brutally killed. It was a haunting walk, and I didn't want that to be the closest I ever got to this girl that I felt, like in a sense, I knew, like this big sister that I never had. In the living room are bookcases, and I see photos that I've stared at for hours, only this time they're 8x10s and 5x7s, and they're framed and on display. 
a photo of Kristen, one of her and Kyle, and the family photo with all four O'Connells smiling at the camera, the image for episode 61. I give Phyllis the gift I made for her, a framed drawing of a rose, with some lyrics to the song by Bette Midler, a song that holds deep meaning for the mother of two and deep connections to the daughter she wishes she could see again. Phyllis takes me on a tour, and we go upstairs. I see beautiful framed paintings here and there on the walls and wonder if she likes collecting art until I'm informed that these are paintings Phyllis has done herself over the years. She's very talented, and I realize how much I don't know about her interests outside of trying to solve her daughter's murder. We come to a front bedroom with a pretty window seat looking out over the garden and the roses, and Phyllis tells me it's Kristen's room. Nearly 38 years later, it's now a guest room, but I take a moment to soak it all in. There are a few photos of Kristen on the dresser, one of her as a baby, a sepia photo of her sitting, smiling. Looks like it's in the same frame it was put in back in the 60s when it was purchased from the photographer by two proud parents. Another photo, a 4 by 6 is tucked into the frame of the baby photo, Kristen with her beloved horse face-to-face. Phyllis turns to me and says, I just can't believe they killed her like that. One thing that definitely hasn't changed in 38 years, that grief and disbelief. My first two days in Minneapolis are spent with my tour guides, Phyllis, Barb, and Kyle. I get to meet Barb's daughter, Nicole. She had a brief time getting to know her cousin, Kristen, but she doesn't remember it. She herself was an infant when Kristen was murdered. But Nicole has been instrumental in organizing files and tracking timelines to see if she can get answers to why her cousin was brutally taken from the family. I've always thought of Nicole as a sort of symbol of how much time has passed, that an infant in August of 1985 is now a grown woman, a testament to how much time and how much life has gone on. Nicole's husband, Tom, is just as kind and open as the rest of the family, and I feel grateful to have these people in my life, even under such sad circumstances. Despite the reasons that bring me to Minneapolis, I'm delighted to see how much there is to do in the area. I'd briefly visited the city in 2009 for work, but didn't really get to take it all in. And I'm relieved I chose to visit in July and not in winter. My hosts take me all over the city and even on a river cruise that Friday night. During our drives, I laugh in the backseat when Phyllis and Kyle sort of do their playful arguing about what direction they're headed, and I joke with Barb that the next episode is writing itself. On my third and final day in Minnesota, I pack up my bag, check out of my hotel, and head over to the O'Connell home. We're done with the sightseeing and all the dining out. Today's plan is to go over some files that Phyllis brings down from her office. She tells me she found the recording from an interview that her former private investigator, Sheldon Furlong, conducted on February 3rd, 1988, with one of the guys that were in the trailer that night on August 14th, 1985. It's on a cassette tape, and Kyle pulls out a cassette player and sets it all up on the coffee table. We hit play, and on my phone, I start recording in my voice memos, 
It's the best technology we can muster, but it works. While my phone is recording the interview, I'm also taking notes with pen and paper, straining to hear details through all the static. But it's clear enough to pick up everything. You see, the interview I'm listening to is with someone that I myself had the opportunity to interview earlier this year, and I can tell immediately there are major discrepancies in what I was told and in what was being said in 1988. Now, I've said this throughout the series, but it bears repeating. Some discrepancies are understandable. We've discussed what can happen with memory over time. Do I blame someone for not knowing the precise time that Kristen stepped out of a trailer that Wednesday night 38 years ago? Not even a little bit. Do I wonder why some details from her time in Ovid are deliberately left out? Yes. Do I wonder why witnesses are more intent on covering their butts than on truly helping the investigation? 100%. In 1988, this particular witness was relatively transparent with Sheldon, the PI, regarding certain details. When Kristen went out to Ovid, she was hoping for a romance with Jim Vermeersh. That much we know. In episode one, I mentioned that there were rumors over the years that Jim actually had a girlfriend there in Ovid when Kristen came to visit him. This has long been speculated, and those close to Jim have in recent years disputed this claim adamantly. However, In 1988, recalling events from just two and a half years earlier, this witness and close friend of Jim's confirmed to the O'Connell's private investigator that Jim Vermeersh absolutely had a girlfriend in August of 1985. And it affected the way that Jim treated Kristen O'Connell, so much so that his friends even pulled him aside and told him to come clean with her, that Kristen had confided in one of those friends that she didn't understand why Jim was being cold toward her. Why had he invited her all the way out there just to work all day every day and leave Kristen with his friends? We finish listening to the entire interview, which fills both sides of the cassette tape. I'm given some other files, too, more information that I take home with me. It seems we're getting somewhere. Let's take a break. Are you a true crime advocate passionate about uncovering the truth and bringing justice to victims? You can immerse yourself in an unforgettable experience at this year's True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival, which takes place in Austin, Texas, August 25th through the 27th, 2023. I attended last year, and let me tell you, this is a fantastic event. It features panel discussions, workshops, and live podcasts with a special focus on ethics and advocacy in the true crime sphere. And if the paranormal and the spooky are your thing, you'll get plenty of that too. To get tickets, go to truecrimepodcastfestival.com and join us in Austin. Don't miss out on the chance to connect with other advocates and take your passion for true crime and the paranormal, to the next level. Use the code METHOD for 15% off your ticket and spend the weekend with some very special guests. Julie Murray, sister of missing woman Maura Murray, Tara Newell and Collier Landry of the Survivor Squad podcast. Oh, and you get to see me hosting a panel with John Palmer, husband of Katie Palmer. 
join us to discuss his journey toward justice for his wife. Again, that's truecrimepodcastfestival.com. Hope to see you there. We all load into Phyllis's car one last time, and it's back to the airport. We hug goodbye, and I bid my hosts farewell. I have a feeling I'll be seeing them in person again. I return to the East Coast feeling hopeful. It's hard to always maintain a positive outlook on a case that has, in some ways, felt stagnant. More theories have come out than I know what to do with. Phyllis has gone through a roller coaster of emotions for decades, feeling like they're close, feeling like they've gotten nowhere. A family left wondering why anyone would kill such a wonderful person. A family who, in many ways, lost the future they wanted, the future they planned, because someone or someones took it all away. I've seen in the flesh a family's pain, a home that's held photos of Kristen O'Connell, forever 20. There are so many questions, the why, the how, the who. Was she lured to New York because she witnessed a bartender in Florida talk about being involved in a hit-and-run, a bartender that also worked at the Golden Buck? Was she lured to New York because it was learned she befriended an FBI agent in Minneapolis? Did Kristen unknowingly stumble upon something she shouldn't have seen, either in Florida or in New York? Did someone come across her wallet and find an FBI agent's business card in there, the one she tucked away after meeting the Minneapolis-based agent and having lunch with him just days before she went to Ovid? Was Kristen targeted because it was rumored she knew something, knew about the drug running from Florida to upstate New York? Was Kristen seen walking on Wednesday night and some locals pounced? Was it a crime of opportunity perpetrated by a group of intoxicated men out looking for trouble? Back home, I transcribed the entire interview that Sheldon Furlong conducted in 1988 with Jim's friend using software that I use for all my own interviews. I then pour over the interview again, making sure I'm not missing any key points. I note that the key discrepancies are as follows. Confusion about whether or not Jim had a car that summer. Maybe it was just a motorcycle. Or wait, maybe he did own a car. That Jim Vermeer did have a girlfriend, and it affected the way he treated Kristen. And he never told Kristen, never came clean, because even if he planned on telling her the truth, that opportunity never came. The best I can come up with in analyzing this information and looking at the big picture, Jim was a 19-year-old, and he invited an attractive girl to his home, not really thinking it through or considering if it was a wise idea. Maybe he didn't think she'd really come see him. When word arrived that Kristen was planning a visit, Jim thought it best to get out of the home that he lived in with his parents and go live in a trailer. After all, wouldn't his parents wonder who this woman was? Did his parents know he had a girlfriend? Would the girlfriend possibly run into Kristen if he had brought her to his home? Was Jim seeing his girlfriend when he told Kristen he was working? Was the trailer a way to hide Kristen away from anyone finding out the truth? Why lie now? I've been told by the friends of Jim's that I've interviewed that they were talking to me because they wanted to help, that they wanted to see this case solved. But lying is not helping this case. 
38 years later, people have the opportunity to tell the truth. I suspect that there's a pact between Jim, his friends, possibly their families, to paint Jim in as a positive light as possible in order to direct scrutiny away. If Jim had told Kristen in early August 1985, hey, I actually have a girlfriend, she wouldn't have gone to Ovid, and she wouldn't have been murdered. She wouldn't have left the trailer because she felt uncomfortable. I suspect that it's that reason that we're not getting the whole truth. I also suspect, as I've said previously, that Jim and his friends are not directly connected to the murder of Kristen O'Connell. But they know that people would be critical if they learned that her murder would have been avoided if honesty had taken place. By leaving out key information about Kristen's host, how is that helping? I have to ask, if anyone who met Kristen in August of 1985 in Ovid, New York, do any of you actually want to come forward and be the one to tell the truth? On Thursday, July 13th, 2023, authorities arrested a suspect in the Gilgo Beach killings, also known as the Long Island serial killings. The bodies of several women were found on a quarter-mile stretch of road in Massapequa Park on the south shore of Long Island, dumped over the course of 18 months in the middle of the night. Someone had pulled over on the side of the road, dragged the women's bodies out into the dirt, and disposed of them like garbage. 59-year-old Rex Herriman, an architect, was placed under arrest outside of his Manhattan office this month. Herriman is accused of murdering three, possibly four women, and was charged with three counts of first-degree murder for the brutal killings of 24-year-old Melissa Bartholomew in 2009, 27-year-old Amberlyn Costello in 2010, and 22-year-old Megan Waterman. It's likely he will also be charged with the murder of 25-year-old Maureen Bernard Barnes. Maureen was found near Gilgo Beach in December of 2010, but it's believed that she was the first victim, having been killed in the summer of 2007. All four victims were bound by camouflage burlap, but that isn't the only thing they had in common. All four women were placed within close proximity of each other, They were all petite females, approximately 22 to 27 years of age, believed to be sex workers, and all had been in contact with an individual using a burner phone before they disappeared. Investigators connected Herman to several burner phones that he disposed of immediately after the crimes were committed. The suspect was ultimately connected to the crimes when he threw away a pizza box, and inside, Pizza crust was found which held DNA that positively matched hairs found on one of the victim's bodies. The Suffolk County Police Commissioner, Rodney Harrison, called Herman a demon that walks among us, a predator that ruined families. Other victims, not linked to the suspect yet anyway, have families that are holding on to hope that justice will be coming for them as well. At least six other victims were found along this stretch of road, although they were not found bound in camouflage, and police have long suspected 
that there may be more than one killer that they're looking for. The following information is taken directly from the County Court of Suffolk County, State of New York, bail application. Quote, As described below, based on the serious, heinous nature of these serial murders, the planning and forethought that went into these crimes, the strength of the people's case, the length of incarceration the defendant faces upon conviction, the extended period of time that this defendant was able to avoid apprehension, his recent searches for sadistic materials, child pornography, images of the victims and their relatives, counter-surveillance conducted online as to the criminal investigation, his use of fictitious names, burner email and cell phone accounts, and his access to and history of possessing firearms, the only means to ensure Defendant Rex A. Herriman's return to court is to remand him without bail. Since the discoveries of the Gilgo Beach Four victims, Seneca County investigators have discussed the possibility that the suspected serial killer could be Kristen's killer. But according to the O'Connells and those close to the case, that seems to be the thought whenever someone is accused of murder in the entire state of New York. And many people wonder, why so much emphasis is placed on putting Kristen's murderer far away from the tiny village in which she was found. Rex Hoerman was 21 years old when Kristen O'Connell was murdered. It appears he was a lifetime resident of New York, raised in Long Island, going to school in Nassau County. Time will tell whether or not he's linked to other murders, but the investigation that led to his arrest serves as a reminder that technology is ever-improving and that DNA evidence found in Gilgo Beach that was once unable to be tested was able to be properly tested once the technology improved. While in Minneapolis, I was also provided with other information that was eye-opening. I've discussed the potential of its importance with Phyllis and Kyle O'Connell for the integrity of this investigation and to ensure that we can get justice. I won't be mentioning the details here but I bring it up to assure those of you who are on Team Kristen to not give up hope. There's much more to this whole story than most people realize. There's a lot more known than people realize. There are details that have been intentionally left out of this series, but we are not giving up. So now, the challenge is this. New York State Police, the FBI, what's your next move? This isn't going away. Phyllis thinks investigators are waiting her out, that they'd like nothing more than for her to be quiet so that Kristen can be forgotten. If that's true, they can rest assured that there are many people right behind Phyllis. And I think I can speak for all of us in saying, you're not getting rid of us. We too want justice. Please test the DNA. Listeners, here is your call to action. A reminder that someone called the police shortly after Kristen O'Connell's body was found. Here is that audio recording. If you recognize this caller, please contact investigator Pete McCadden of the New York State Police. Check the show notes for more details. Go ahead. You look at, at uh, uh, 
Chevy on the Waterloo, and you'll find him. If you open the trunk, if you open the trunk, you'll find you'll, you'll find what you want. The green Chevy on Main Street in Waterloo. If you open the trunk, I'm getting out of town because I told him not to do it. I told him not to do it. I'm getting out of town. Okay. Oh wait a minute. No. Green Chevy. And you can also share this episode and Kristen's story on social media. There's power in numbers, and someone knows something. To get more information about Kristen's case, visit my friends at Uncovered.com and make sure to join the Facebook group, Justice for Kristen O'Connell. Thank you for listening to this episode of Method and Madness. If you haven't already, please leave a rating or review, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. To connect, I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. To chat, suggest a case, or discuss the episode, reach out to me at MethodAndMadnessPod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. Sound editing is by Moen Spo. That's it for this week. Until next time, take care of yourself. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.